boldly, in fact. <clears throat> uh, we're going to begin in Thessalonians, First Thessalonians. So the question that comes up here is it had in James is, who are you? A lot of people in our world are seeking for self-identity, uh, to identify themselves. There's some craziness about that currently. But it's a great question that everybody does have to answer is who they are. Uh, who made you, if you really are uh, looking, <laughs> who made you and, and who told you what you are? Because none of us have figured this out for ourselves. And um, certainly none of us have created ourselves. And so who we are, if we can find the answer to that, defines uh, who, who we, uh, how we act and really our manner of life. Uh, how we depict ourselves in our own mind, which is a self-consciousness, actually will greatly motivate how we live and what conduct uh, we choose. There's a, a neat story about Napoleon. I don't know if it's actually true, but it doesn't matter because it serves an illustration. The story goes something like this, that uh, Napoleon was in battle and his horse uh, went a bit berserk and almost threw him off. And a corporal ran over, a corporal had seen this, ran over, grabbed the reins, calmed the horse, and Napoleon was able to stay on his horse. The response of Napoleon to the man who had saved him embarrassment and possibly injuring uh, or injury, he said, thank you, Captain. This was a corporal, but Napoleon said, thank you, Captain. And as the story goes, the corporal tore off his stripes, walked over to the officer corps, wherever that was, and he stood amongst the other officers thinking he was truly a captain, that Napoleon had just on the battlefield promoted him. And uh, the others, the other uh, officers, knowing that he's a corporal, just kind of looked at him and said, what the hell are you doing here? Get out of here, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, the, the war some of the warnings that Paul gives us in Thessalonians, and not just there in other places, is that there's going to be a lot of people who are going to tell us that we're delusional, that we're not really princes and princesses of heaven. And if we're the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, and if that's really true, if we're in Christ, then we are. It doesn't look like it now. Uh, we look like corporals or privates or really less. But, you know, we are that and we know it. The Scripture tells us this. And in Thessalonians, Paul encourages and reminds them of that very thing. When Paul defines who they are, which they already know, but he's reminding them, when he defines who they are, he entreats them and exhorts them to live in the manner of what they are. And that's very much like what James does in his book, as we've seen. But then Paul also warns them. We're going to see a, a brief uh, uh, cameo of the devil here in this book. And that he's called the tempter. And the tempter is always, like Peter writes, prowling about like a roaring lion. Seeking someone to devour. And how does he devour them? He injures our faith in who we are and by that identification, solidly identified by who we are, which comes from God, not from man, not from us, that we actually live in the manner of what we are because we're so very convinced of it. The enemy is going to try and tell us different. And they're going to, they're, they are going to tell us different, but they're going to try and convince us. And that, in that, uh, Paul is going to warn us uh, as well as many other things. So let's uh, begin in prayer. Let's thank God for the fact that we can study and learn these books with uh, the Holy Spirit as our guide, to be humble, to be reverent before these words so that we grow in grace and knowledge and really accept them for what they are. So with that, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the privilege and honor of having your word in these letters 
These first letters that Paul wrote, they provide for us the means by which we uh, can see uh, things that he has, uh, that you have through him. And of course, it's not just to the Thessalonians, it's to all of us because it is your word. Every word in your scripture is God-breathed, and so we know, Father, that it comes from you. You have designed every book, all in the New Testament, each one, to be what you wanted it to be. And so out of all of those books, we learn and are guided by your truth. So we ask, Father, that through your Spirit, each of us would see and comprehend these great themes. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, what we're going to do, and Alan, could you give me just a little more uh, in-house volume, please? Thank you. Tess, yeah, that's good. Uh, thank you. Uh, we're going to look at each of the themes in by chapter. So we're going to go chapter by chapter, uh, pretty much looking at the entire book. And so we get a feel for the entire book. And the themes by chapter we start, of course, in chapter 1. Uh, in chapter 1, Paul tells them who they are. They are brethren beloved by God. This is a drastic change from the last point here, which is where they came from. Uh, they came from paganism. They came from idols. And you know, imagine this drastic change. And all of us have experienced this. Uh, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of us take it for granted too much. Now, we have been completely changed, not improved, but uh, uh, crucified and resurrected. And so, who are they? And this matches us. We're brethren, beloved by God. And what they have, uh, what Paul says to them, what they have, and again, they're brand new believers, is that they have faith, hope, sorry, faith, love, hope, and good works. Within a matter of months of their salvation, their church already has all of this. They didn't wait for more letters. They didn't wait for more theology. They didn't wait for more, uh, quote-unquote, spiritual growth. They got at it immediately. What they heard, what they learned, they put into practice. And this tells us, for all of us, that we don't have to wait. For all, for new believers, they don't have to wait. What you know, put into practice. Don't sit around waiting to do that. Because you will, uh, you will give yourself or, or develop within yourself a habit of hearing and not doing, a la James's letter. So uh, Paul begins his letter with a salutation of grace and peace, like he does in almost all of his letters, and then thanksgiving for them, and then he prays, and that's, or tells them that he's praying for them. This is the opening of almost every letter that he writes. But then he describes them in a good light of what they actually are. Now, remember that he had been chased out of Thessalonica, and he did not know how the church was going. He is now, when, when he, actually, when he sent Timothy to check on them, he is in Athens, and it's a few months afterwards. And he, does, he knows that he left them under persecution as he was persecuted, and Paul is very concerned with the status of the church. He sends Timothy to check on him, and Timothy comes back. By the time Timothy returns, Paul is in Corinth, and Timothy tells Paul that they're doing awesomely. They are doing wonderful. So look at one one. First Thessalonians one one. Paul and Silvanus uh, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And so what a marvelous beginning. Uh, can you imagine if Paul wrote this about you? And this is exactly how we would want to be. Again, I can't emphasize this enough. They're brand new believers. But yet, what do they have? He has learned of this from Timothy, that they have uh, work of faith, labor of love, steadfastness of hope, and all in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father. They are beloved by God and chosen by God. And they know this. 
And because of who they are, beloved and chosen by God, they have work and labor that is of faith and love. They're steadfast in their hope. They were pagans just months ago. They're completely changed. So Paul says, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. You also became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation and in the joy of the Holy Spirit, that you became an example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Notice that you received the word in, in the Holy Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit and His influence or filling of you, if the Holy Spirit is filling you, when you hear the word of God, you hear it with joy. Naturally, this is God's mind. And this, you know, we should be joyful when we hear God's word by the Holy Spirit. They became imitators of Paul and the Lord. Brand new believers. But they saw what they needed to be. And that is in that Paul is encouraging them. And so what does Paul hand them here initially? His identity. Who are you? Right? Napoleon said to the corporal, thank you, captain. He said, I'm captain. Right? Who are we? Am I the son of Mike Chagru? Or am I the son of Yavah Elohim? You know, I, and now, of course, I am the son of Mike Chagru. But, you know, is that really who I am at the core of myself? And in my self-consciousness, when I see myself, which we always do this, we always look at ourselves from that vantage point of, of inwardly, we see ourselves, we, um, you know, we don't even think about it. It's just a self-consciousness. We, we see ourselves. What do we see ourselves as? Are we just earthly creatures? Are we just, you know, are, are we just as fill in the blank? Or are we those who have been convinced of who we are in Christ Jesus? as Paul has stated here about the Thessalonians. And from our identity comes a proper course of action. If I am a child of God, and all that goes with that, and what that means, then how should I behave? How should I think? How should I treat that person over there, or that person over there? How should I treat those that I love dearly, and those who are my enemies? Now, how should I do everything? And it all comes from my identity. Who am I? And I think this is one of the biggest problems in modern Christianity. In modern Christianity, a lot of Christians are told in churches how much God loves them and that they're forgiven and that they're saved. And all of that is true. And that's a part of our identity. But there's another part of our identity that is often overlooked because people don't want to hear it. And that is that we're called to be holy. That we're called to be blameless. Ephesians 1, 4. You were called for this very purpose. And that holiness is kind of taken out while Christians live however they want, knowing that they're forgiven and loved. And that's kind of really a Corinthian way of living. Uh, and then, of course, there's all kinds of uh, false doctrine out there. False doctrine... Uh, lives on this earth in every corner of the world, lies and falsehood, it's everywhere. And it's always trying to infect us. And so, thankfully, we have the Word of God to remind us. And when we don't neglect... See, what I love about what we're doing here, we're going to take pretty much this entire year and do every book of the New Testament. We're not going to overlook anything. And by the time we're done, we'll be able to see the entire New Testament. We're not going verse by verse. There's not enough time for that. But, uh, you know, the big themes that are shown in every book that God has put in his New Testament, we'll be able to look at it all. And at the initial part here, James, Thessalonians, Galatians, Corinthians. Right? We already did James. We do Thessalonians now. We move into Galatians and Corinthians. All of these first books are all about our behavior. 
right? This, as we progress, we're going to see more and more theology. We're going to see more and more Christology. But these first books are all about what we do. And so at the start, we might think, wow, the Bible's just all about how good we behave and how we're not to behave and how we are to behave. But as we progress, we'll see that other books are not nearly about uh, as much about as what how we are in our behavior as they are about theology concerning God. And um, and we will take it all. And so when we don't overlook anything, we find out that our identity, who we are in Christ, and what comes with it. So what comes with our identity? Faith. Right? Can I, and I, I'm a Christian, but I have no faith that God will deliver me or that God will provide for me. Or, you know, I don't even know if I'm saved or not. What kind of a Christian are you? <laughs> not a good one, right? You, you have the name, but you don't have the life. And so, you know, what comes with the identity are the properties of what God has made his new humanity to be. And that new humanity is faith. And now, Paul has said it here, and it's the big three that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians. Faith, hope, and love. He adds here steadfastness. So we have faith, hope, love, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, and this steadfastness of you know, having, keeping our faith in, in what it is that we are. All of this comes, if I say that I have faith, but I'm not one who lives in faith, walks by faith, you're just words, aren't you? So I, we all had faith to become saved. But what Paul's going to talk about here, as James did, and it really much of the New Testament talks about our faith as application of what it is that we are and what it is that God has made us to be. And if you have faith, you trust God. If you have faith, when the bad news comes about whatever, right? the banks are all going to collapse. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> right? It, it seems to be an issue of late, but okay. What if the economy all collapsed? Yeah, I know that God takes care of the birds of the air, and he's going to take care of me. Right? That's faith. That's faith in action. If you have faith, you don't worry. If you have faith, you cast your cares on the Lord. Right? That's faith in action. If someone says to you something that's wrong, your faith says, no, that's wrong. I do not accept that. Faith in action. Along with that comes hope and love. So to know yourself, to be in Christ and what possessions come with that life is life-changing in terms of behavior and manner, how I behave. The holiness of Christianity is lost when believers don't understand their calling. It's lost. We'll think, well, all right, I really know a lot about God. We saw this was yesterday's message, right? I know a lot about God, but I live an immoral lifestyle. According to 1 Thessalonians 4, you don't know God. You have an academic knowledge. Maybe you know much of the New and Old Testament. But if your lifestyle is one of immorality, it says that you don't know God. That's the whole reason the pagans don't know God. They're immoral. Certainly, but we're here talking about believers. Can a believer live an immoral lifestyle? Yes, we say, yes, thank you, Corinthians. Now, Corinthians shows us this, that believers can be carnal. A carnal believer doesn't know God. You can say that you do, but you don't. And that's something to truly understand. And that, by that, you will, you will recover. Uh, you'll be motivated to recover. If we lie to ourselves and say, yeah, I really know a lot about God, but yet I live in a moral lifestyle, and if I'm convinced of my lie, then I'm never going to change. And I'll go through my whole life never really discovering who God is. 
Right? We're not to have a superficial knowledge of God. We are to have a full knowledge of God. So, when not all is taught of the Scripture, holiness, for instance, and Christianity is therefore, um, uh, sorry, holiness is lost, knowledge of God is lost, these things are cast aside. Uh, when it comes to identity, it's interesting that when after Jesus is baptized in Matthew 3, 17, God from heaven calls down and he says, this is my beloved son. Now see, he says that to everybody there. It's out right outside the Jordan. As John the Baptist is there, he hears it. Everybody around there, there's many people there, they hear it. John said that he actually witnessed the Holy Spirit come down upon Jesus Christ. And he heard this voice, which is the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 42, the first servant song. This is my beloved son. That's an identity. The father identified the son. And then secondly, the father affirms the son in whom I'm well pleased. So it's not just the identity, this is my son. It's not, this is my son and I have no opinion of him. It's this is my son who pleases me. Now in Luke, and I didn't know this. You asked me this earlier uh, yesterday. I would have said Luke and Matthew said the exact same thing, but they don't. In Luke and in Mark, Mark uh, the Gospel of Mark has it exactly the same way. It says, you are my beloved son, speaking directly to Jesus. And I looked at this in the Greek. It's unmistakable. The pronoun su, which is you, is right there. And in fact, in Greek, you don't need pronouns. So when they put them in, it emphasizes. He says, you are. The verb to be in the second person singular and you, the pronoun. You, it emphasizes it, are my beloved son. And in you, I am well pleased. So Jesus is given an identity. In chapter 1 of Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, Paul identifies the Thessalonians as those who are beloved by God. So what we want to know now is how do we please Him? How do we please the Lord? And we here know that. But we're going to bear, we're going to bear up under the repetition of God's Word. Uh, if I live in the things that go with my identity, that pleases the Father greatly. And we'll see that. So then we move to chapter 2. Chapter 2 is really all about Paul. But it's not like, you know, it, Paul's not jumping. It's not like two different books. It's, it's not alien to the rest of the book. It's just that what Paul wants them to remember is that when Paul brought them the gospel and ministered to them, that he suffered greatly. So, Thessalonians, you're suffering. Paul says, so did I. So do I. You're not alone in this. So, living this life, which is your identity, has to be lived under maximum pressure. Living out your identity, which is to be Christ-like, has to be done under persecution. We can't say, well, look, I'm going to hang up my Christian coat. I'm not going to actually do this because I hurt or because life is hard. We have to keep doing this. And that's what Paul states here. Now, what Paul also states, now, ministers of the gospel say, well, I'm not an apostle. I'm not, neither are you. They're, they aren't here anymore. But you and I have ministries. You have a ministry to the body of Christ and serving the body of Christ, especially in the area of your spiritual gift. But you also have a ministry, every one of us has a ministry as a witness to the outside world. We are witnesses of the gospel to all unbelievers out there. And if you're going to be an open and confident witness of the gospel to those who are in your life, you're going to be pressured, persecuted, and Paul says it here. Uh, suffering is a given in the Christian life. You are going to suffer. And so the next thing he tells us in this chapter is you're not in, you cannot rely on people to keep going. Now, don't get me wrong or don't get Paul wrong. People help us, but people are not the source of our strength. 
People assist us, but they are not the source of our wisdom or our knowledge. Our strength comes from God and God alone. So that when there's no one around, and at times there will be, it's your own little wilderness situation, that you are able to carry on the light of the gospel and maintain that um, uh, value of life that comes from being in Christ, even though no one is around to help you. No one sees it. No one knows. How many Christians live a different life in public than they do in private? Because no one's looking. Right? In private, how many Christians go to their immoral lifestyles? Because nobody's looking. They know God is watching. But they also know they're forgiven. That all things are under grace. And so they're forgiven. So when they go to their alone time, that they're not the same people. And that is a failure here. Right? If your motivation is just when people are looking, you're really using people's attention as a crutch. For, and then you're lying to yourself that you actually know God. And this is what God calls. God does, to which of us in the body of Christ does God call us to a mediocre life? A mediocre kind of half-committed spiritual life. And he does not. So look at Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. You yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you is not in vain, but after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, and in Philippi, Paul and Silas were thrown into jail, as you know, we had boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. So they suffered in Philippi. When they came to the next town, Thessalonica, which isn't too far away, they suffered also more opposition. But Paul said, we had boldness to speak the gospel. Right? We don't, we don't just have boldness to speak the gospel when it's easy. But when we're when under much opposition, and in verse 3, for our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our hearts. And God who examines our hearts desires to be pleased with us. And if we love our Lord, we want to be pleasing to Him. And if you are pleasing to Him, your ministry is like Paul's. Right? That's the, that's the reward you know, when somebody told me the other day, when we get humble, God gets busy in our lives. You know, when we're prideful or we're all about ourselves or we're selfish or we have this dual life where we're pretending to be uh, holy and blameless, but we're really not. Um, what can God do with you besides try to correct you? But when we truly put our life in God's hands, that's when the potter can mold. That's when the potter can mold the clay. That's when the potter can really get to work when we put our lives in his hands. And this is the reason Paul writes so many of his letters is that he's convincing these churches. He's trying to convince. He's encouraging the churches that he has started to actually put all their effort into this life that God has so graced them out with. In our ministries, we must rely on God alone. People will support us, but they're not the source of our power. So they, uh, meaning Paul's group, Paul and his group did God's work despite the hardship that came with it. Look at verse 9, 1 Thessalonians 2, 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and so is God. How devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly, blamelessly we behave toward you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children. And that, God, that there shows Paul's tenderness towards them. He sees himself as their father and their mother. 
so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Notice the amount of work here. Right? You're our witnesses. We devoutly, uprightly, blamelessly behaved towards you. We gave you the gospel. Night and day we worked so that we wouldn't be a burden to you. Despite the persecution from those around us, we encouraged you, implored you, exhorted you. We never stopped doing what God called us to do. And, you know, you don't... Do you read in God? Uh, sorry, in Paul's words here, any kind of feeling of God, and it was terrible. You know, it was such a burden. We hated every minute of it, but we did it anyway. You know, we pushed through. <laughs> you don't get that, and you'll see it in his words. Paul is overjoyed to do this, and the reason why Paul is overjoyed, you know, and there's a there's a human side to Paul. He's he's not God is that there were some who responded. There were, we don't know the percentage of people, but we would assume the majority in Thessalonica said no to Paul's gospel. And then there were some who said yes. And when they said yes, their entire lives were changed. And Paul witnessed it. And that is a handful of people out of a metropolitan, it's a big town. Thessalonica is a big city. Um, it's a major seaport. And so there's a lot of people there. There's a lot of foot traffic and ship traffic, if that's a thing. Um, and Paul sees this handful of people find their true lives in Christ Jesus because he brought the message. It brings them great joy. If, if absolutely zero people responded to Paul, I'm sure he wouldn't have the joy that you know he he has here. He's human like anybody else. And then look at uh, verse 16. Now verse 16 says to us, "But wrath has come upon them to the utmost." Who's them? Those who oppose Paul. Those who oppose the gospel. Notice what he says. I do not bring wrath upon those who are against me and against God's word and against his gospel. Where does the wrath come from? It comes from God. And so vengeance is mine. I'll repay, says the Lord. We should step miles away from that. All right? We're opposed. People hate. People do evil things. I'll, you know, we should actually have pity on them rather than hating them. That's why Christ said, look, love like I do and love your enemies. They have to deal with God. And I, you know, all of us should know that to deal with God's wrath is not going to be good. Not even, not remote. It's going to be terrible. And we should feel for them and pray for them, do good to them, be kind to them, in the hope that we can deliver them. As the book of Jude says, we snatch them out of the fire. Because if you're facing God in opposition, God says, I make war with the proud. And it's, what is it? The writer of Hebrews says it's a terrifying thing to be in the hands of the Lord. All right. Chapter 3 is suffering is a given. So Paul identifies them in chapter 1. He commends them for who they are, for what they are. Then he says, in the spite of all the opposition and suffering that you faced, you are living the way that you are, and he encourages that. Paul then throws his hat into the arena of suffering as a minister. In chapter 2, he says, you know, as you suffer, I suffer. So as, you, as we persevered, Paul says, in the communication of the gospel and the work of God and all that we did, as we persevered, you persevere. So Paul uses himself as an example. And then now he rolls into the fact that this suffering, hey, Thessalonians, if you think it's going to go away, you know, 
Like you suffered all last year and you're like, whew, thank God that's over. Paul's like, know this, that the suffering is never going away. Now, is it every day? No. But is there going to come a time in a believer's life, the positive believer, the believer who's you know, striving for that upward call, the positive believer who is, loves the life of God and strives for the life of God, is he going to have a future with no suffering in it? Not until you're dead. After death, yes. But on this earth, no. So Paul tells them, suffering is a given. And he doesn't call the devil the devil, he calls him the tempter. And it's, it's very clear in the context that he's referring to the, to the devil. The devil is a given. When is he going to quit? Is he going to give up? Nope. Hasn't he failed a lot? Yep. Isn't he doomed? Does he know he's doomed? I don't know the answer to that, but I'm assuming he does. I don't see an angel, I don't care how arrogant and proud he is, that he's somehow going to escape the wrath of God. I don't think so. I don't think he's that dumb. So why doesn't he just quit? Why doesn't he hang up his Prince of Darkness hat, if he has one? I have no idea. I don't know how to answer that. We say, well, he's proud. Yeah, it's a vague answer, though. But whatever. We don't know too much about him, and I don't really care. His goose is cooked, and everything he's going to try and do is bound to fail. Even when he takes over the world with his antichrist, the beast, the false prophet, it's doomed. It's doomed. Nothing is going to work. However, he is going to tempt us all the time. Prowls about like a roaring lion. And then in this chapter... Paul's going to say, look, though you're tempted and though you're persecuted, you need to stand. And this gets us back kind of to Ephesians 6 in the armor of God. Stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Pick up and put on the full armor of God, right? And that's kind of here too. And, and what Paul says, what is this standing firm is faith. And it's what the tempter is after. The tempter is, it's not so much that the, te- the devil, it's not so much that he wants to get you to sin and then he twists his little you know, evil mustache and laughs to himself that he got you to sin. Uh, he wants you to sin, but there's, there's a reason. See, the sin itself is not the end of what he wants. What he wants is to damage your faith. He wants you to not think of yourself the way that you are. Or as another person told me, which is is great. I thought of this analogy years ago, and someone said it to me the other day that I was like, wow, that's great. That you can sit in a jail cell as a person with the door open. You know, there's no prison guards. You could just walk out into the sunshine, but you'd rather sit in the prison. I mean, what's the prison? This worldliness. What is the prison in this world? I'm worried. I'm fearful. I'm, uh, I, I'm, I have no hope. I have no love. I have no happiness. I'm miserable. I'm addicted to various substances. I'm, I'm going day to day in a miserable state. And you're a prince or princess of heaven? Doesn't add up, does it? I'm worried about money. Your father is the creator of the universe. Who sent his son to give this marvelous message in the Sermon on the Mount that said, consider the lilies, the grass, and the birds. Your father knows you need these things. Why are you worried? And he told them, you have little faith. Why am I afraid? Why am I not confident in my own skin? Why can I not control this body when it controls me? When your body controls your heart, you live in fear because you never know what that body's going to do. And that 
is not. That's the prison. That's not the freedom. So what does Paul tell us? That faith is what stands firm. What is the devil after? Your faith. Not your faith for salvation. He can't touch that. That's already a done deal. It's your faith now to live the life that God has given you because you are God's child. As Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing will separate us from the love of God. I'm convinced that if He gave us His Son freely, with Him He'll give us all things. I'm convinced that I have to live this life the way God has designed it to be lived. And no compromise with anyone or anything. Where does that confidence come from? It comes from faith. Satan seeks to damage it. Look at 3.1. Therefore, when we could no longer... Sorry, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For what? For affliction. So this is Peter says the same thing. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. Paul says the same thing here. We were destined for this. Notice, why, what does Paul mean when he says we could endure it no longer? Is that <clears throat> Paul loved the church. And again, he didn't know what was happening. It's not like he can pick up the phone and call them. He didn't know how things were going. And so he sent Timothy. It's like he said, I couldn't, I couldn't endure it anymore. He probably, it probably hurt him to send Timothy away because Timothy is such a good servant that he, you know, it, so he sends Timothy. He, he longs to so much to find out what's happening with them. So in this letter, and in this letter also, Paul calls them his children. Um, and in Paul's other letters as well, he shows how much he loves the body of Christ. And, he, and for many that he has never met. Like to the Colossians, he, he never went there. He never met any of them. I'm, sh- I'm sure he has not met all the converts in Thessalonica. Yet he uh, loves them. He loves the church. Why does he love them? Well, it's not for their personalities. It's for who they are in Christ. This is Christ's body. These people, all of you, everybody in the church, no matter what denomination they're from, if they're born-again believers, they're those that are beloved. They would have been loved by Paul. And if all Christians had this love for other Christians, there'd be no divisions in the church ever, ever. And yet, unfortunately, there are far too many because there's too much pride in the church. There's too many Christians that have pride, that have a lack of humility, and because, you know, say someone believes something that you don't believe. If they don't believe in Christ as their Savior, then they're not your brothers and sisters. But if they do believe in Christ as your Savior, but they differ with you on some doctrinal thing, you know, what is the natural tendency of the prideful person? Is, no, I don't want anything to do with you. you know, do we do that to our own family? When, you know, I'm sure you have a brother or sister or cousin or an uncle who doesn't behave the way that you would rather they behave. But don't you love them nonetheless, generally? We should have the same, same actually more so, attitude to the church. So then... Here Paul reminds them that suffering is a given. It's always a given. Uh, it's easy after you have been through a, a few days or weeks or years, could be at times of suffering, that once it's over, you think to yourself, Whew. and right, thank God that's over. And that we have this natural inclination to think, well, now that that's over, I'll never see anything like that again. And that is not true. So, uh, 
Paul calls him the tempter. Look at verse 4. 3-4. Three, three, For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. And I, I love how he says there, as you know. Because why do they know? Because it's happening, like, right now. You know, <laughs> As they're reading this letter, they're, they're suffering at the hands of others. For this reason, when I could endure it no longer, I also sent to find out about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What did Paul want to know about? Their faith. Right? Not, not anything else. I mean, he wants to know how they're doing, but what, what is the thing that he's after? And, and this is not knowing their faith unto salvation. He already knows that. He's writing to them as brethren. This is their faith to live the Christian life. This is the, I walk by faith and not by sight. That's what he wants to know. And what is Satan after in each of us is that faith. He says, I wanted to know about your faith for fear that the tempter might have tempted you. And so, right here in the context is, what is the tempter after? He's after your faith. That, you know, who you are in Christ, you know, is that really... You know, I know you believe it. I know I believe it. But to truly see myself in the mirror of my soul, do I see myself as, you know, this earthly weakling... You know, I just get it wrong so much and I'm just sinned. I just see myself as the, the, the person who's just doomed to never make it. You know, I'm never going to mature. I'm never going to glorify Christ or something like that. To not truly see myself as a son of God and therefore, you know, have, have myself like committed to some earthly addiction and and I'm okay with that. As much as it hurts me and hinders me, you know, I'm okay with that. Why? Well, you know, come on, I'm human. Right? Aren't we we're all weak, right? So I'm human. And and we are, and we are weak. <laughs> but we have the Holy Spirit within us. We have the word of we're to have the word of God in us. We are to be sanctified. That's chapter four. We are to be sanctified unto the Lord and not ruled by our flesh. And, and when the tempter says to us, whatever way, we're told in Paul's letters, there's temptation to lust. That's, that's one. False doctrine. That's two. And uh, the third one is persecution. So far we've seen all three of these are in this letter and in James. Persecution. Right? Uh, there, uh, in James's letter, they were under various trials. And we'll see it in all the letters. The, the people who follow the Lord, the believers who follow the Lord, are always persecuted. So there's persecution. There's this, you know, the temptation from the flesh. And there's the false doctrine, which is really the temptations of the world, the world system. And all of these are designed, whatever Satan can use to get you, to weaken your faith. Look, if he can't rob you of your faith so that like you completely quit on the Christian life, he'll take what he can get. Right? There's only one way that the devil flees from you. James told us this. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And you resist him by being strong in your faith. Faith says who I am. Faith says who I am and how I am to live. Satan would have us rather settling for earthly things. Where's your joy come from? Does it come from the Lord or does it come from earthly things? Now, is it wrong to have joy from earthly things? No. But is that the true source of your joy? Do you have no joy in the Lord? Then there's an issue. There's a problem. If there were no earthly things entertaining me right now, would I still have joy? Hmm? In our world, we're filling our time with everything that can distract us. 
from morning till night, from one thing to the next, filling our souls with distractions. What if I didn't have those things? Let's say, God forbid, the internet went out everywhere. Alright, your phone doesn't work. Uh, there's no Netflix, there's no television, there's no internet, there's no social media. There's, it's all gone. You have to get in a time machine and go all the way back to 1990. <laughs> That's how recent this is. This internet nonsense. Um, oh, thank God for it. We wouldn't have a church without it. Um, yeah, okay, what, and you're alone. You're alone, no internet. Uh, nothing, you have nothing. Could you have, would you have joy in your heart? It's a great question. Uh, Satan wants us settling for earthly things rather than reaching for the upward call, which are the heavenly things. Which is really where true joy is. And the other things with it. Love, and peace. This is the same faith in life that we saw in James. And James mentioned two people as an example whose faith was justified by their life. And that was Abraham and Rahab. Abraham, by faith, sacrificed his son Isaac. Rahab, by faith, hid the two spies. If these two people said, yeah, we have great faith in God, but they didn't do those things, James is saying, well, they just got words, maybe it's in their head, but they got no display of it, no works, no outward showing of what faith really does. And so we called them, if that were the case, they wouldn't have been justified. So, Timothy reports back, let's see, for time, should I just stop? Four and five, well, let's just move on. Chapter four. In a few minutes, we can, so, uh, it's another thing, and I meant to say this, and I'll say it all throughout, the, the, um, to get the real fullness of this uh, course of study that we're going to do, uh, you you would or should read the books. So we're going to spend this week in First Thessalonians, next week in Second Thessalonians. So at sometime during the week, if you read the book, and you can read it in different translations, uh, and um, you know, kind of get a feel for it, because I'm not, I don't. I'm not going to go verse by verse. I'm just looking at themes. And and what I'm doing here for today is what I'll do every week. There'll be one class that tries to summarize the whole book. With a book that's five chapters long, I still ran out of time. When it comes to like Romans and Corinthians where you've got like 16 chapters, well, to summarize the book is going to take, uh, you know, it's going to have to be a very broad summary. Uh, so, but the the hope is is that we get a feeling for the book. Thessalonians is encouragement to live, and so here in chapter four, so chapter one was who are you, right? Who are you in Christ, and what comes with that? Chapter four is how do you live? Chapter two, Paul says, "I suffered. You're going to suffer like I do." Chapter 3, we were so concerned about you, so we sent Timothy, and thank God he came back. He told us you were doing great. And by the way, you're going to always suffer. You know, Intermittently, yeah, but you're always going to suffer. And the tempter's always around. Chapter 4, now that we know that, don't quit. Right? Chapter 4 is uh, live in sanctification. God calls us to sanctification and reject, uh, to reject this is to reject the Holy Spirit. Now, the way we can do this with the minute here we have left is we'll, we'll leave out the part about the rapture and the second coming of Christ because that's what we're going to do on Sunday. And uh, this is the passage we looked at yesterday in chapter 4. 
If you look at verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So getting back to, you know, what when God said of Jesus, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. For you and me, our identity is that we are children of God. You know, when God says it, it's true. So as children of God, what do we have? What can we do? This is my son, God said, in whom I'm well pleased. And to live in sanctification, notice in verse 3, this is the will of God. To live in sanctification. And sanctification means to be set apart unto God in all areas of life. And then he goes on to say that you abstain from certain things, which are immoral things. And so to live in sanctification, to do the will of God that is the will of God, and that's what pleases him. And this goes with our identity. If you're a child of God, you're a son of God, you're a prince or a princess in the kingdom of heaven, this is your life, and that's what James told us, and that's what Paul's going to tell us in his first few books. What's brought out here, though, that, um, well, James did kind of bring this out, but What's more prevalent here is the amount of opposition that comes against us. It's going to roll into chapter 5. is going to be more sanctification. That's how he ends it. Uh, so we can go there. Let's, let's read quickly the end. Look at 5.14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays evil, no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of uh, this is the will God, sorry, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit. This is really the same as what he said before. You reject the spirit if you're not sanctified. Don't quench the spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Right? It's like bullets out of a machine gun. One after another, after another, after another. About what? About how we're supposed to live. And we, re- you know, now don't look at the page. Tell me what I just said. He said, uh, all right, we urge you, brethren, go. (laughs) Of course you can't, right? Neither can I. I've read the passage like 12 times just today. I I, I can't rifle them off either. So we we have to come back and we look at it and we discern and we absorb. What is this life, which is really eternal life? What is this life that God has given to us so graciously? And is it really as valuable as Paul says it is? As the Scripture says it is? And are we really able to live it? And all the answers to that are all yes. And as Paul writes, it's exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we could have ever asked or thought of. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, not entered into the mind of man the things that God has, held, that things that God has prepared for those who love Him. We got to go to this place to find those things that I has never seen. And that's why Paul is so adamant that look, I know opposition is coming, I know suffering is coming, I know persecution is coming. Go through it. Stick with faith. The tempter's going to try and damage your faith. Stick with that faith. What does the word of God say about you in Christ? Right, and it's only five chapters. It's a small letter. There's so much in it. There's so much in the whole New Testament about this very thing. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the calling that you have placed upon our lives. Thank you for making us who we are. It cost your Son his life to be judged for the sins of the whole world. And by doing that, you have given us this marvelous life for us to live, for us to enjoy, 
for us to truly pursue. We thank You for this life. And we ask, Father, that as we live it, You too reveal more and more the great benefits and joys of it. We ask in Christ's name, Amen.